Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. I have an important one today. You know, for a change. My guests are Robert Samuels and Tolu Oluranipa the authors of His Name is George Floyd. Samuels and Olu Renipa are reporters for the Washington Post, and their book is about George Floyd, about his life and death, but mainly about his life and who he was. And he was a good man. He was a good-hearted man who loved his family, loved his friends. He had his faults. He spent time in prison, sometimes for things he didn't do. He was arrested by cops who later were proved to have made false arrests and planted drugs on people, black people. And in a Texas system where there were no public defenders, he was given advice and probably not actually bad advice to plead guilty to something he didn't do to take two years in prison rather than risking 20. This is a book about systemic racism. If you ever had any question about whether there is systemic racism in this country and a history of systemic racism and it still exists, read this book or listen to this podcast. It's it's a great one today, you know, for a change. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
I, I have to tell you, his name is George Floyd is a book that is, it's just an important book because it gives life to someone who everybody saw die. And he turns out was a wonderful person with some weaknesses and flaws. But the book to me just talks about systemic racism and the history of it. And because this, this became kind of a racial reckoning, which has maybe had a bit of a backlash. I want to talk all about that, but uh, the portrait you paint of him is a very, very important one. Thank you guys for this, for joining me. Thanks so much for reading it. And thanks for having us here. Yeah, it's great. It's great to talk to you. Looking forward to the discussion. So, um, this was videotaped by a young woman, right? Yes. And uh, she was one of the people who saw it happening. And we saw at the trial a number of people who did that. While Derek Chauvin is, is leaning on him for how long was that? Nine minutes and what? Nine minutes and 29 seconds. And it changed people. And this has been happening a lot. But nothing like this had been on tape and this tape showed Chauvin murdering the guy and not giving a shit, right? Yeah. And people took to the streets, and there had been a number of recent murders of by police of, of black men and women, and this was kind of it. And the Black Lives Matter movement, which had started, when, when did that start after... Um, Ferguson? It originally started after Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, but it, it kind of took off after Ferguson uh, took off nationally after, yeah, after uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. Um, and then it just sort of increased and increased. And then we see George Floyd die in 2020 and the entire country just sort of galvanized around this movement. The, uh, the thing that strikes me about the, the book is, you know, you've had this backlash against uh, Black Lives Matter and against the idea of systemic racism and this bullshit they've done about attacking critical race theory. But you start the book right after the Civil War, after slavery ends, and w what his great-great-great-grandfather? Uh, his great-great-grandfather. Uh, great, great. Two greats, yes. Uh, tell me about him. Uh, George Floyd's great-great-grandfather's name was Hillary Thomas Stewart. He was born enslaved in North Carolina, uh, but by the time he was eight, the Civil War was over, and he got his freedom just like millions of other enslaved Black people across the South. And uh, he decided that he was going to work hard for the next 30 years. He was going to build a family. He was going to work hard on the farms that were available, that he was able to acquire through hard work. Um, and he did that for 30 years. And he amassed uh, 500 acres of land. Um, it wasn't easy. It was uh, really backbreaking work that he did with his large family. Um, but through that hard work, they were able to get a, a, a large amount of land that made him one of the wealthiest men in his community in eastern North Carolina in the late 1800s. But because he could not read, because it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read. Uh, that was after Nat Turner Rebellion. Right. Right. Um, what year was that? In the 1830s or something? Or yes, that takes us back to the you know the pre Civil War period, um, and that was a 
period where all of these southern states were, were really cracking down. Not only were they making slavery more harsh, but they were fearful that you know black people were going to have an uprising. So they decided that no more teaching anyone who was enslaved how to read, no more allowing black people to gather even during the holidays. And so this is the kind of slavery, the kind of system that George Floyd's ancestor would have worked under. Uh, and the fact that he was able to escape from that and overcome his past and become wealthy and live a pretty upstanding life as someone who had a big family and worked hard and was well known in his community, as we found through our research, uh, it shows that life could have been very different from George Floyd if there was justice in, in, in his ancestry. But instead, we saw his ancestor targeted uh, and have all of his wealth stripped away by unscrupulous white business owners and white tax authorities who during this backlash period, and we're talking about backlash, there are multiple periods of backlash in American history. And one of them, one of them happened after Reconstruction. The end of Reconstruction set up this guy who accumulated 500 acres of land and was working this land, uh, not just incredibly hard, but really smart. Right. He was, he had a natural talent for, for agriculture and he knew how to make money out of the land, out of really nothing but his hands and the soil and the natural resources that he had around him under his feet. Uh, but all of that was taken away from him. He wasn't able to transfer any of that wealth. He died in poverty. He died poor. He fell sick. He lived the last decades of his life really depressed because he knew that he had tasted wealth and tasted part of the American dream and the American promise. And it had all been stripped away from him uh, without him being able to fight back. And he knew that his generations, his descendants would suffer under that same poverty, not having land, not having really any any status uh, because they had lost what they had worked for and what they had earned. And as a result, he wasn't able to give away anything to his descendants. And they all lived in poverty up until George Floyd was born more than 100 years later. George Floyd was born in North Carolina or in New York was didn't his his father was a musician. Yes, his dad was a music, musician and his parents had met in New York and lived in New York and tried to pursue stardom as many people do as they leave the south and try to pursue a better life in the north. Um but they found it was hard. They lived in, you know, basically tenements and they struggled and they barely made ends meet. So George Floyd's older siblings were born in New York by the time he was born in 1973, both his mother and his father had moved back to North Carolina and he was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina in deep poverty in 1973. And that's where we pick up part of the story. George Floyd as a, as a baby, as a young uh, kid in the first three years of his life, he lived in North Carolina before his family moved again and moved to Houston, chasing, um, you know, hopefully better opportunities. Right. And I, I guess his father and mother had split. And now his mom marries another guy. Is that right? And they go to Houston. Am I right? Or am I doing this wrong? No, you're doing it, you're doing it absolutely right. You're, you, you did the reading, Al. Um, so uh, <laughs> I always try to prove to my professors that I've done the reading. <laughs> so um, when. George Floyd's mother, Larcinia uh, Sissy Stewart, she and uh, George Floyd's dad, George Perry Floyd Sr., they separate. Miss Sissy did not, as everyone called her Miss Sissy, she did not want to live the wa- life of being the wife of a traveling musician. And she eventually meets a man named uh, Philonis Hogan, who is a military man. And he's from Houston, Texas. And as their relationship continues, they decide to go and move down to Texas, where she tries to rebuild a life and a more equitable life 
for her children. Yeah, where they go is the third ward, which is basically a segregated is all black, right? Or almost. Right, absolutely. It's a red line neighborhood, a segregated neighborhood. Uh, because government policies asked it to be that way. Well, let's explain redlining. Redlining is basically banks don't loan to to you to buy a home in areas that are redlined. Right. If there was a belief from a bank, largely bank supported by the federal government, that uh, a place was not worth investing in because of its blight or because of whatever reason, there was a red dot placed on that property. Now, when there are a series of red dots, it created a line. That's what we call redlining, right? Those neighborhoods that were often redlined were almost exclusively black neighborhoods. And this was started like under FDR in the 30s. People lost their homes during the Depression and they wanted to help people get homes back, but they only invested in places where well, they want, we want to do that so that people that, that we're lending to people who will stay in their homes and won't, you know, so this will be successful. And then they start, they started redlining and they redlined. They were just racist. <laughs> and they, this is the FDIC, right? And, uh, so that's, that, that was the birth of redlining. Yeah. And, and in addition to, to that, um, you had under FDR this big public housing push, uh, which was designed to get more people into housing they can afford. But at the time, it was heavily segregated, especially in, in places like Houston, where the first public housing project that was built uh, happened to be the place where George Floyd ended up growing up. And it was basically you know, redlined in its own way because it was built in a way that was specifically for Black residents. Uh, and there were other nicer public housing uh, places that were built specifically for white people. And when they built the public housing in Third Ward, uh, that was the CUNY homes where George Floyd ended up growing up, they started moving black people out of some of the integrated neighborhoods that they lived in and on the nicer side of town. And they said, you should all live in Third Ward, congregate there, and you can't live in the nicer public housing that we're building in the nicer part of town. And that's how the segregation, in addition to traditional redlining, perpetuated across generations. And by the time George Floyd moves there in the early 1980s, it's still basically 100% black. It's gotten even worse in, in, in terms of the income level and the, the, the deep poverty that was evident there. And government neglect is the order of the day um, because the wealthier areas got the upgrades, they got the renovation, but the, the places that had been you know, segregated and told uh, that this is a specific community for black uh, residents, they were neglected and they didn't get the upgrades and they fell into disrepair. And that's how George Floyd grew up in a, in a community that was uh, basically broken and people there had to fend for themselves. And we, we write about in the book how there was that great sense of community and people relying on it, on one another, but the government uh, was not there. The government had perpetually- And the schools are essentially completely segregated. He's going to all black schools, right? Right. And that happens in large part because once the courts mandated integration, uh, there were schemes and practices that happened in Texas, like in many Southern states, to prevent that integration from happening. They started doing things like ending compulsory education or setting up private school vouchers. Or some people even tried to create their own school districts so they wouldn't have to integrate students. So George Floyd, he 
enters into a school system that feels the residual burdens of this. One, when neighborhoods were integrated, a lot of Black people who lived in their community had the opportunity to move to other places where they could be better educated. And also that when the schools were forced to integrate their workforces, their educators, right? The best Black teachers uh, in the neighborhood were sent to the white schools, but the white schools didn't respond in kind. So what happened was you had a crumbling school system that was had very little investment alongside with educators who did not have either the academic or the cultural experience to really relate to these children who had already been growing up disadvantaged. Now, George Floyd was tested in the third grade, one of those standardized tests, and he was at, at grade level in, in both reading and, and math. Absolutely. He was, he was hitting those benchmarks, which is a pretty difficult thing to do if you're growing up in a destitute neighborhood. So George Floyd, he was demonstrating an ability that was fairly impressive. One of the uh, anecdotes we talk about in this book comes from his second grade teacher, Alan. It's an essay that he wrote in second grade about what he wanted to be when he grew up. And uh, George Floyd, who had just learned about Thurgood Marshall, he talks about wanting to be a Supreme Court justice. And it's not just the dream of being able to be an arbiter of the law, to be able to make things right in the world. That's really impressive about it. It's that the spelling and the grammar are right. There are some pretty difficult words for a second grader. It's that the thinking made sense. So when he was growing up, when he was a small boy, a jokester uh, when he was at home that everyone loved. He was displaying a talent academically that would have been rare. But as he gets older, he's a uh, big kid. He's tall. He's lanky. He's uh, ends up being 6'6", six, six, and they, they steer him toward athletics. They steer kids from this neighborhood, from the third ward, into athletics because that's really the their best way out. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons that appears to be the best way out for so many people is because the education system is so underfunded, so dilapidated. It's such a narrow pathway through education out of third ward because the government had not invested in the schools there because they're all black schools. It's easy to forget them. It's easy to overlook them. They don't have as much political power. And that's what we saw at George Floyd's experience. People said, if you're going to make it out of this community, it's not by being a Supreme Court justice because Supreme Court justices don't come from this community. Our schools don't educate people in the way to allow them to become a Supreme Court justice. But we do have great athletes in this community. We do have people who train their bodies and they are, they are uh, experts in uh, athletics and they're able to excel and get college scholarships and go to the professional leagues. And that's what his goal was. When people saw his body, they saw that he was fast, they saw that he was tall, and they decided to essentially steer him in that direction and basically told him that that's the way you're going to make it out. And he came to believe that. And he was a star athlete. He was uh, a pretty stellar athlete. But as he poured more and more of his efforts into athletics, uh, he was unable to put as much effort into academics and his and the school system already was underfunded. So it ended up being this toxic mix where he's pursuing athletics and he's trying as hard as he can to make it out of his community and provide for his family through sports. Uh, but his shaky academics 
wouldn't allow him to play in college. Even after he got a college scholarship, he was unable to meet the eligibility requirements. And uh, he ended up having to drop out of college and go back home. And that was a really important turning point in, in his story and in his life. And it is where some of the negative uh, experiences that he had growing up black and poor in third ward began to really take shape. And the, the picture you get of George Floyd in this is a guy, he knows he's big. And so he knows it, people can be intimidated by that. And he goes out of his way. It to, he goes in, when he enters a room, he says, he goes up to people and says, I love you and stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. Uh, George Floyd was always very self-conscious about his size because he knew by his very stature, especially when he became a footballer and grew all that muscle so he could be a force on the field. He knew that when he was off the field, that size, being big and black and male, was a recipe for people to stereotype and prejudge him as someone who is terrifying. And so George Floyd, he developed this personality that whenever he walked in a room, he'd want to greet people, shake their hand, look them in the eye to make sure they knew that he was an okay person. And he also did something else that I thought was really interesting. Uh, George Floyd becomes a really beloved person in his community. One day, one of his friends, Daryl Hunter, they ask him, how do you get people to like you? And he says, you have to look at people. And notice if they're doing something different one day, and then you compliment them on the effort. I, you know, I just want to orient your readers a little, your listeners a little bit, Al, because the reason why all of these things are so important, right, is that they show from Hillary Thomas Stewart to George Floyd a constant belief that something can be done to right themselves in the country, right? And at each of these steps that we've gone through so far, we see the residue of historic injustice, sometimes active injustice, continually interacting with this family. So you're seeing these dreams and these hopes and these ambitions that are being shaped by larger systemic forces that they are not equipped to fight because they're Black people living in America. So now he doesn't become, you know, a uh, college athlete because he can't meet eligibility. He goes back, third ward, and young black men there have don't have a lot of ways to make money, and one of them is, is in drugs. Yes, so just to put us in the timeline a little bit, this is the summer of 1997. George Floyd is in his early 20s, and he's now a college dropout, and he's headed back home to Houston's third ward. This is a place where, you know, once there were blue collar jobs that were available, there were, you know, hard work that can actually lead to comfortable, even if hard scrabble lifestyle. But, you know, after uh, we saw a lot of these jobs go overseas, we see the disinvestment in these communities. Um, drugs is what's left and it happens to be the economy of the neighborhood. It seems to be the place where people are able to provide for their families and it's ubiquitous. And the, the other thing that is ubiquitous is 
the presence of police. Um, and this is also happens to be the aftermath of the, the onset of the war on drugs, the crime bill, and the push to lock up people for low-level drug offenses. And George Floyd's life just happened to intersect with the war on drugs uh, in a really tragic way. And we document how he got caught up in uh, the drug game and how police were really just waiting for him uh, and ready to take advantage of any mistake. And, and in some cases, there were cops who just were rewarded for arrests, numbers of arrests, and the police weren't necessarily held to tremendous standards in terms of proving <laughs> that the person was actually dealing drugs or had drugs, right? Absolutely. And you see that happening so often in George Floyd's life, who ends up spending a third of his life beyond behind bars. I mean, some of the details of the detainments were pretty eyebrow-raising and frightening. Uh, in one of them, he's stopped and detained for walking down the street looking like he has no particular place to go in your own neighborhood. Uh, that was you, the charge. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was that was the explanation. Or that was the suspicious. That, that's right, what I mean, right. Suspicious. Can you imagine living in your neighborhood, having to think about whether or not you're walking too quickly or too slowly? I, are, whenever I uh, walk uh, in my neighborhood in Minneapolis or in uh, when I'm I have grandchildren in New York. I always make sure to walk with intention. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> but I'm I'm white, and, yes. and uh, it's okay. I can kind of walk like I have nothing particular <laughs> that I want to do. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. So this is, this is the kind of suspicion that surrounded his neighborhood. But we also have to remember that these things had really terrifying consequences in a world in which police presence and the enforcement was acted upon swiftly. There weren't a lot of opportunities for George Floyd in a court of law to plead his case, right? And so there was this belief that at some point, the cops will find you and detain you. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're guilty because you're living in a legal system that's unfair. So what do you do? What are you left with? You could find a lawyer, but there's no active public defense system in Texas at right. the time. Right. Uh, so there's no, not a lot of hope there. What you do is you take a lesser charge, say you did it, and hope for the best. Yeah, your lawyer tells you, you better just take the, just go for two years. Yeah. Otherwise, you might go for 20. And you believe it because that's what's happening in your community. And when you look like the way George Floyd looks in a country that was so oriented on criminalizing people who looked the way George Floyd looked, there was not a lot of hope that anything different would happen. You know, later in the book, you write this, uh, he had a uh, girlfriend who's white. And she had drug problems, and he had drug problems at the time. But you make the point that a big black guy with drug problems is thought of as menacing and dangerous. Uh, but a white person gets sympathy. Right. Well, you know, Oh, you know, have an addiction. Yeah, yeah. Well, Courtney Ross uh, was George Floyd's girlfriend when he was in Minneapolis for most of the time he was there. They did drugs at the same time. They had the same drug dependency issues, the same ingredients that were going 
in her body were going into his. But the response of how people treat someone like Courtney Ross, who is white, and someone like George Floyd are night and day completely different. Even though neither of them entered into this situation of drug dependency with the intention of complicating their lives. They started because they were unsure of the powers of opioids, like many people in the country were not. And so what you see in this is the disparity and the impact of what it has when race is translated and to trying to figure out who a person is and how they should how they should be treated in the legal system and also in you know the court of popular opinion so often we get asked why write about george floyd he was an addict and it's true he had a drug dependency problem lots of people in this country do but what's fundamentally there within that question is this idea that you should be sympathetic to some people who have these issues. And if you're Black and you look like George Floyd, it's a terrible problem, which is bedrocked on junk science and a lot of stereotypes and prejudices that we try to go through case by case in the book. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the authors of His Name is George Floyd, Robert Samuels, and Tolu Oluranipa. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only fourteen ninety-five. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now, at one point, there are some friends of his some people he knows who are leaving Houston and a number of them are going to Minnesota and there's a number of reasons for that and one of which is Texas is a really rough place uh, in terms of social services as you're saying no public defenders they didn't accept Medicaid uh, expanded Medicaid for the ACA so you can't get treatment etc etc so these folks are encouraging him to go to Minneapolis, and he does. And he um, gets treatment. He goes to a place called Turning Point. I've been at Turning Point, um, and uh, it's a great program. Uh, is, is it all black men, or is it uh, uh, yeah, men Yeah, mostly black men. There, there yes. And 
it just has a different way of treating these guys. And Richard Hayden, who started this, his son, became Jeff Hayden, is a state senator, a friend of mine. So Floyd graduates Turning Point, and he's doing well for a while, but then he, he has a roommate that dies of an overdose. Yeah. He walks in one day after his second shift of work, and uh, he calls for his, his uh, roommate. Uh, his name was Eric. Everyone called him Big E. At Turning Point, they're sort of seen as a pair, Big Floyd and Big E, mm-hmm. both guys who had done some college, played basketball, good college athletes, big trying to make it through. He was also was not from Minnesota. He had moved there. And he walks in and he sees Big E unconscious. And it turns out that he had died of a drug overdose. And for George Floyd, this is another one of those sad turning points, right? Because he had come to that state with the belief that he could get past all of the things that he had been seeing in Texas. But there was another truth that as a Black person living in America, there were stresses, there were hardships that were really hard to escape wherever you lived. And so for a while, George Floyd, who was by all accounts, a gregarious man who loved to socialize with his friends. Uh, no one sees him for a couple of weeks. And he talks about the darkness uh, that had started to replace the light that Minnesota was supposed to shine. And it is in that situation, within the haze of that depression, that he had returned to the familiar comfort of using again. So he's in his life now. He's been, he's spent quite a bit of time in prison and something that figures in that was murder is claustrophobia and you know and anybody who watches who watched that trial saw him you know begging not to be put in that car and struggling not to and that's when they start sort of manhandling him he, he was kind of afraid of the police and naturally so, I guess, because if you've been arrested before, <laughs> if we're walking down the street with seemingly no intention of what you're going to do. So this is this is leads up to that day. This is a, a very important history that uh, we, we try to document in the book uh, and to try to explain for people who just saw George Floyd on the video, why he was so fearful, why he was terrified. There's the claustrophobia aspect, the fact that he had spent so much time in the cramped space of a jail cell and how traumatic those experiences had been, how the private prison industry that he uh, ended up having to, to experience uh, as an inmate really just stripped all the profits out of the prisons and made them as heinous and difficult as possible because they wanted to spend very little money. So that meant George Floyd spent a lot of time cramped in a cell with very little resources, with very little rehabilitation, and with a lot of violence around him and with a lot of reasons for him to have those emotional demons. So he was actually claustrophobic. We talked to a number of people who confirmed that he wasn't just making that part up. And he was afraid of the police because he had been interacting with so many police officers over the course of his life, including a number of crooked police officers. There are officers who arrested him who were later charged with falsifying arrests, falsifying evidence, essentially preying on people in his community. And he knew that even if you did the right thing, even if you were innocent, you could easily be preyed upon by a police officer. So 
when he saw those officers come up to him and tap on his window, uh, you know, when he was sitting in his car by himself, you know, with his friends and, and essentially not, not doing anything violent. He was uh, afraid that this could be the end of his life. And shortly after the officer tapped on his window, the officer pulled a gun and pointed it in his face as Officer Lane. That's a traumatic experience for someone who genuinely believed that his life could be ended by a police officer for no reason and that no one would care because he had seen other people uh, killed by police. He had he, he, he knew that he had been arrested by police in, in cases where he felt he was uh, innocent and where, you know, later evidence showed that those police officers were crooked. And so that's part of the, the terror that was on his face when the police officers came up to him on May 25th in 2020. And we wanted to showcase exactly w- what that meant and, and how what the history was behind that because people who saw the video may say, oh, just comply, you know, just, you know, the police officers are there to help you. And that's not the case for every every American experience. I think most of the listeners have have seen the footage from that day and saw what, because that was videotaped and because people saw that, it started something. There was just a nationwide response. And we started seeing people taking to the streets. And in Minneapolis, kind of blew up in a way, but that that was complicated. There were there were there was a th- the third precinct was set on fire, but we also saw some agitators. This guy with the umbrella, the Dustin Black, who broke windows, turned out to be what, what group was he with? Some right wing, uh, Boogaloo Boys, I believe. Yeah, there's no question that people were angry. There is no question that the National Guard got out a little slow. And so we saw rioting and in Minneapolis and some in St. Paul. One of the most interesting parts of reporting this book for me was speaking with Governor Tim Walls and Mary Jacob Fry, who go through sort of what they were thinking at the time and making the decision about when to deploy the National Guard and when to do all of these steps, should the police officers have left the police station? How much to give in to agitators who had come to the city to do nefarious things? It is true that there are businesses that uh, were burned and attacked in Minneapolis. Black-owned businesses, yeah. Exactly. So that strike struck people as being bizarre. No one within a community in North Minneapolis or South Minneapolis would think of burning down the Midtown Global Market or ransacking a library. But those things were happening. And so what I think is really important about all of this is that when the injustice, the full cruelty of racism was put on display at a time when no one could look away from it, No one fully knew how to respond, right? Because the emotional outpouring of what was seen and the affirmation of the lives that were being lived in this country had come to a head in a way that we had to confront it. We didn't know what to do when we were actually confronted with the big thing, right? With proof of the evidence that this big thing exists. And what we saw was an entire country trying to invent a new choreography about when we're really confronted with 
this big thing. And that thing is the continuing course of systemic racism, right? What we hope all of the discussions about George Floyd's life does is to help people understand that that big thing was always present in America and in George Floyd's life. It revealed itself on May 25th, 2020. And so the scurrying that came afterward also harkens back to the question about why we have not been scurrying for all of the instances that had come before. And uh, this starts a national demonstration of outrage and also of solidarity. There were, in many cases, more white people marching than black people in many cities. And systemic racism started to be something you heard about. In ways we hadn't before. Exactly. And uh, that, was a, that was a good thing. That was a good thing. And now, you know, maybe we should talk about the backlash, which came from Trump and uh, right-wing forces. But what basically happens is that people are beginning to talk about systemic racism. They're starting to have those conversations, and guess what? Those conversations are uncomfortable for some people, and this country's history can be uncomfortable when it's told in its nuanced, full way, which includes, you know, some proud moments and some really dark moments of uh, exploitation. And we are journalists, and it's our job to cover everything, the good and the bad. And we did that in Floyd's life, and we did that with the American story. And the backlash that we've seen it just showcases how that can make sometimes it can make people uncomfortable to to know about the history, to know about systemic racism, to know about how the current disparities that we have in our system and our in our economy and our schools, the segregation that has persisted it started somewhere and it has persisted for a reason. And we don't necessarily live in a meritocratic society where everyone gets an equal shot. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable. And I think some of the backlash we've seen is because, you know, after the summer of George Floyd's murder, you know, people were starting to grapple with some of these things, grapple with the history, grapple with the inequality and make changes. Corporations, institutions, city councils were starting to make some changes. And people thought, you know, the people that have been part of this backlash uh, have felt that things were moving too fast or that they were uncomfortable. And, you know, some cynical politicians have been able to take advantage of that and, you know, use a lot of the misinformation that we've seen in our system over the last few years. They've used that in this area, which is highly fraught because race has always been a fraught issue. And that's what we've seen in terms of this backlash. We uh, saw in the immediate aftermath, the Minneapolis City Council put out something defund the police. I thought that was very unfortunate uh, because, you know, there are some people who continue to use that, but not, not many. What we want to do is do police reform. And I know that this is what George Floyd's family wanted to see happen. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen that. Well, 16 states have passed laws banning no knock warrants or the use of the chokehold which is something that the Floyd family would have wanted. But we did not see those things happen on the federal level. And why didn't they? Well, the Senate had an opportunity to think big and think about meeting the moment. But as time progressed and 
worry increased about what might happen if we confront some of the big ghosts in this country. It became less and less of a priority. And things got caught in the typical morass that happens in the United States Senate. And so there was this larger question. <laughs> I, I know you know nothing about this. Um, but there, I'm really curious about this because you guys yeah. covered this, uh, you know, that Tim Scott from South Carolina was representing the Republicans and thought he could do something as the only black uh, Republican senator. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of progress being made on this. And of course, George Floyd's daughter, Gianna, famously said, my father is going to change history. And this was going to be it. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of terrific parts of that bill that, that we heard about uh, creating more diverse police forces that reflect the, the community, uh, requiring the cops to wear body cams, banning chokeholds, all, all kinds of really good stuff, right? And was it just a qualified immunity that that killed this thing? Qualified? Why don't you explain what, what qualified immunity is? Well, qualified immunity is a, a practice that prevents a police officer from being directly sued or charged uh, with an incident that happens when he or she is on the police force. So what those who like qualified immunity and believe that it should exist believe is that it's unfair to charge an individual or hold an individual accountable, but you have to look at the larger system of the police department. People who want to end qualified immunity say that Ending it is a good thing because it holds the person who does the actual action accountable for that action. And by doing that, it would be a deterrent to help shake up places like the third precinct of the Minnesota Police Department, where officers were acting almost with impunity that people like Derek Chauvin, who had murdered George Floyd, believe that if a complaint is made, that nothing would happen. So that was one of the big and major arguments that there could be no traction on. But when we did the reporting, the other thing that continually came up were two other sort of philosophical struggles, right? Uh, the mechanism that the federal government can use to Enforce sort of, to, to, to enforce these laws, that means that would would ultimately block funding if they did not follow the whims of the federal government. Uh, the political argument that Tim Scott was making was that the bill was asking local law enforcement to do too much and to be too much at the whim of the federal government. Others, Cory Booker was saying, was leading the charge for the Democrat, was saying, look at what's happening right? We need to do something to prevent what's happening. So that was the first philosophical debate, right? And then the second debate was, all right, if we cannot agree on all of these things, can we do something small? You know, what in DC parlance we call a skinny bill. Can we do something small if we can't do something big? And just do it step by step. And given everything that not just the country, that the world had seen 
people who are negotiating this on the Democratic side said, no, we cannot do that and put this bill in the name of George Floyd. It has to be large and meaningful. That's not just sort of emblematic of kind of political philosophy, but it talks a lot about the way we see the big problems in the country when it comes to race. Do we take, do we exchange small steps when we can take big swings? Who gets to be held accountable? Whose fault? Who should be blamed and shamed? All of those things are happening in this bill, but they're also playing out in the discussions that we're having that you, had alluded to earlier about how history is taught, how it's supposed to make you feel. All of those things are still big questions and unsettled issues in the country. Well, we literally have, like in Florida, DeSantis puts this bill forward. I'm not sure if it's been passed and signed, which is that if a teacher makes a kid feel uncomfortable, (laughs) that... uh, the child's parents can sue the teacher. How do you teach American history if you're going to get sued anytime you say something that could make a kid f- feel funny about their race? You know, how, how are you going to talk about 250 years of slavery and what that was and without some parent going like, my kid felt uncomfortable I'm going to sue you. So how do you characterize it for 250 years or people in this country who work for free? Is that what you say as a teacher? And, you know, and the kid in the class goes like, uh, you mean like my summer internship with my dad's law firm? And it's like, no, no, that's not, it wasn't quite like that. That was voluntary. <laughs> Kyle, you know, I mean, like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And of course this critical race theory. And now, uh, we're seeing what happened in Buffalo was about a great replacement theory and we're seeing white supremacists. It's, it's pretty ugly. It's a, it's a tough time. In the, in the book, when we were talking with Reverend Al Sharpton, he reminds us that uh, there's almost a Newton's law to civil rights in this country, that when a big step is made, there's an yeah. opposite reaction to it. One step forward, one step back. I think one of the things that we just fundamentally believe as journalists, and for me, it really that belief was really reaffirmed in the reporting of this book, right? It's that history lives and breathes. It is a wrong thing to think about it as just a vestige of the past or a cinema cinematic film that you can just have a feeling about, right? Journalism is about, and think, and this book is about thinking about the way history informs how we think and how we act toward our fellow men. And that is, I think, the big disparity when we're talking about the feelings and the discomfort that uh, this country is changing, right? That it's becoming browner, um, which is the core of the replacement theory. It's also the core of the discomfort and unsettlement about thinking about the fact that 
Thomas Jefferson did some great things and he did some not great things. And that police in this country have protected people and they've punished people unfairly. Uh, the challenge is to somehow allow people to live with both. But our challenge as people who wrote this book and did the reporting is for readers and your listeners to consider that history continues to live and we have a choice about how to right set the future. That's what I hope people think about more. One, one thing I, I just also want to say about the book is that you, you get a real sense of who George Floyd was. He was a good man. He was a good man. And people loved him. His friends loved him. His family loved him. But for his race, I mean, and where he grew up and in the kind of society he grew up, you know, this path what would have been very, very different. But he was a good man, and that's the sense I, I got. We, we, we definitely wanted readers to come away with the understanding that they felt like they knew George Floyd, George Perry Floyd, Perry as he was known to his family, and also the fact that there are millions of other people like George Floyd who, like you said, but for their race and the community that they grew up in and the discrimination they experienced could really contribute in very major and significant ways to this country and really live full lives and experience the American dream. George Floyd had his life taken away by a police officer and he had been so slowly suffocating over the decades under the weight of systemic racism. And there are millions of other people who might not have their deaths caught on camera, but are also slowly suffocating under the weight of the systems that we all have contributed to. And we wanted people to read this book and maybe come away with the sense that something should be done and maybe the same level of outrage that we got when we saw the video, uh, we can muster uh, for the people who are suffocating in silence uh, under the weight of discrimination and injustice all over the country. Thanks to both of you for this book and for joining me um, in this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. 
Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.